Hello, my name's Phil. Can I have a wave? Everyone say hi, Phil. Hi, Phil. Beautiful. Why am I here? Because uh, I'm Luke's friend, really. Everyone say hi, Luke. Hi. Beautiful, thanks. Um, do you know what? I, I first of all want to say thank you um, because uh, I live in Birmingham. Can everyone say Birmingham? Any Brummies? Yes, come on. So, um, so I live in Birmingham and uh, I've, I've known about G2 through Luke, but also I, um, I'm really old these days. Uh, so I've been a youth worker at our home church in Birmingham for a while. And a girl called Beth Grist came to G2 for a while. And I can't tell you how amazing it is as someone who was, who was kind of part of her youth work team. My wife kind of mentored Beth as a young person to know that she came to this church, and this church, you, discipled her in a beautiful, loving, amazing way, and it was just amazing to kind of do that together. So I know you're amazing, because a young person of ours from our church came here, was so loved and discipled along the way. So that's one of the reasons I'm here, um, because I just think you're amazing. Um, the second reason I'm here is I work for the Evangelical Alliance. Can you wave me if you heard of the Evangelical Alliance? A few people. So we're an organization that brings together evangelical good news Christians from across the country, 17,000 individual members, 3,500 churches, 600 organizations. If you're not a member of the EA, you should become one, because it's brilliant. Um, and we represent Christians at the highest levels of government, trying to help kind of protect religious freedoms and speaking out on the issues that really matter to you. Um, but also, you're not the church around mission. My own role is around 20s and 30s. Do you know what? The, the, there are so many churches that struggle to engage younger generations. You clearly aren't one of those churches. Um, but my job is helping the whole church be better at reaching those in the younger generations. But I'm just passionate about seeing a church full of all generations and significant members, uh, significant numbers of 20s and 30s coming to know Jesus. That's my job. What a job, eh? So it's great to be with you today. Super. It genuinely is wonderful to be with you for a couple of reasons, for the very serious ones um, that I've uh, already articulated. Um, but secondly, because uh, you, uh, you, you, you make me realise how old I am. Um, I, was a, I was a student, well, I still, in my, body, in my head and in my body, I still think I'm kind of student age. That's clearly not true. Um, I realised this wasn't true, actually. Um, last year, when I went to go and uh, visit a mate, I went to uni in Sheffield, so just down the road, um, and um, I, was, uh, I went to visit a mate who's still in Sheffield, and we ended up kind of like, on a kind of student-style night out on a Saturday night in a club in Sheffield called The Lead Mill, which is like this like, proper like, rock music club. And um, I was there, you know, I've, as I said, a wild night in our house is like half eight. So I was there at like two in the morning, kind of throwing shapes on this dance floor, having a great time. And I realized how old I was when this guy came up to me, who looked about 12, and he comes up to me, and he comes and he goes, where are you from? <laughs> and I said, mate, I'm from Birmingham. He goes, how old are you? <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm 34. And he goes, shake my hand. And so he shook my hand. And for the rest of the night, I kid you not, this guy, getting gradually drunker, kind of kept staggering up to me going, Birmingham, 34, shake my hand. And about 10 times he did that, and I realised quite that like, I'm not a student anymore at that moment. Um, beautiful. Um, this evening, we're talking about firm foundations. And I wonder if you can remember when you were younger, the kind of games that you would play. Uh, when I was younger... Uh, we lived in Birmingham, and at the back of our house uh, was some long grass. And um, it was very kind of, it was a game that Nerf bullets hadn't really been invented yet. And so we played, my friends and I, Cowboys and Indians. And uh, there was a few ways of winning Cowboys and Indians. We basically had cricket stumps, and there was this, all this long grass. And we would kind of lie in the long grass um, and uh, kind of pop up now and again with our cr kind of cricket stumps and go bang and shoot each other. That was the kind of primitive way in which we played this game. 
And there were a few ways of, uh, of winning Cowboys and Indians. One of them was to kind of pop up out the grass. Another one was to kind of get behind a tree and kind of spin around like James Bond style. Bang! Do that kind of thing. But the, um, the surefire way to win Cowboys and Indians was to build a fort. And you could pop down behind the fort. Pop up from the fort. Bang! <laughs> when, um, when Caleb, my uh, oldest son, was about 18 months old, uh, he would come downstairs, we'd come downstairs on a Sunday morning, really bleary-eyed, about five o'clock in the morning. My wife's love language is sleep, um, and, so, uh, and so remember that, gents. Um, and so what we do is we would, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, whoa, hello, it's fine, can I just borrow this chair? Thank you, thanks very much, beautiful. Um, we would um, come downstairs, and he would have these big kind of plastic blocks, um, which he would um, balance. Well, he would get me to balance, because he was 18 months, so he couldn't do anything. <laughs> And he would balance health and safety, it's going to be okay, the blocks on one another, and, and then he would delight in kind of knocking my tower down. This evening we're talking about belief and the foundations of belief. And some people treat belief and faith like a fort. And they use it as a way to kind of say, these are the beliefs that define us, and these are the beliefs that define everybody else. And we are safe inside, and others are out there. And unless you believe what we believe, you're not in the fort. And we're going to use these to define who's in and who's out. Other people, um, I don't know if you can remember what it's like to begin to have knowledge. Um, when you begin to know stuff. And the challenge, I, I'm sure you're all very clever and many students, that kind of stuff. But when you began to have knowledge, it's, it's like an amazing thing. It's an amazing moment. And Caleb has just started to know what it is to have knowledge. He comes back from school and he said to me the other day, and he said, Daddy... People love me, because I'm really clever. <laughs> and uh, he, he's like his daddy, he's got a self-esteem problem. The challenge is he's got too much of it. So fortunately, God has put Danny in our lives to keep us down a peg or three. Some people are like that with belief. And what they do is they build up their belief and say, look how brilliant my belief is. And then they go up to other people's belief systems and knock them down. But when Jesus was talking about what it, what it was like to have faith, and belief. He told a story. Can you wave at me if you went to Sunday school? Anyone Sunday, any Sunday schoolers? Beautiful. This, is gonna, this bit's going to go great. Um, because when I was in Sunday school, we would learn a song. We would learn songs about stories. That's how our theology is formed in Sunday school, right? So if you, if you would humor me if you went to Sunday school by joining in uh, the song, because Jesus told a story about two men who built a house. And the song goes, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Do the actions, come on. When Jesus talked about belief, he talked about a firm foundation. And this evening, I want to I urge us to be people who build our lives on the firm foundations of Jesus. Can we have a look next slide up, please? See, sociologists say that we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. A VUCA world, if you like. And you only have to turn on the news, don't you, to see the macro effects of this VUCA world. 
We only have to think about our own lives. The Prince's Trust produced a piece of research three or four weeks ago that said that 18% of all 16 to 25-year-olds think that life is not worth living. Our lives are VUCA on a global scale and a personal level. If there's ever been a time that we need to stand firm on firm foundations, it's now. And as Christians, one of the beautiful things that we have is firm foundations. If you've got a Bible, turn it on or turn uh, with me, if you've got a paper copy, old school, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read for, for us from verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one I'm normally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. Father, would you please speak to us tonight? Just want to invite you in your own heart to pray that simple prayer. Dear God, please speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Because what I want to do this evening is talk about five foundations that Paul talks about in that passage to the Corinthians. When he says, this is of first importance. And talk about how that has been true in my own life. As I have thought about the foundations on which my life's been built. And the faith that is in me. And the first of those is the Bible. Because Paul is insistent over and over again in the passage we've just read that it's according to the scriptures. And the Bible is not a a self-help guide. It's not a book of inspirational memes. It's the irrepressible, irrevocable, inspirational word of God. And we need to treat it as such. It's first of all the truth about who God is. And in our world, so many things set themselves up as gods over us, whether they be political philosophies or ideologies, whether they be Apple or footballers or celebrities. So many things try to set themselves up as gods over our lives. This is the truth about who God is. And the way in which God interacts with us is the same way in which God interacts with the heroes and the people we read, ordinary people throughout Scripture. Second thing the Bible does, it tells us who we are. Before I joined the Evangelical Alliance, I worked for 12 years with Youth for Christ. And the question being asked over and over again as I encountered 11 to 18-year-olds across the nation was, who am I? Who am I? In a world where, 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 which tells us we have to, to be loved and to fit in, we have to look a certain way, act a certain way, achieve certain things. The Bible tells us that we are loved beyond our wildest imaginations, that we are completely accepted, forgiven, significant, secure, that we have a new identity before Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training in righteousness. The Bible is completely amazing. It's the truth about who God is. It's the truth about who we are. It tells us what to do as well. A few years ago, I, uh, I borrowed a mate's van and uh, was driving across the north of England and um, filled it up with petrol and realized after about 20 minutes when blue smoke started pouring out the back that it was a diesel van, not a petrol van. And I put unleaded petrol in the van and it goes wrong. Why? Because I went against the maker's instructions because in the glo glove compartment of this French Citroen van was a beautiful little maker's instructions manual which says, I'll try a French accent, do not put the unleaded petrol in the diesel van. It will go wrong. It's very terrible, terrible. Terrible. I'm really sorry about that, actually. <laughs> but the truth is that the maker, the creator of the universe, has knit us together and knows what's best for us. So that's why the story tells us how to live. So it's who God is. It's who we are. It's, it's how to live. Finally, it's the verses inside us that will save us when the storms come. When I was at university, in, a, in one of the lowest moments of my life, I went to bed one night and the situation was just beyond my, my, my control and I went to bed in complete anguish. I remember kind of turning over into the pillow and screaming into the pillow. Didn't know how to move forward the next day. When I was a teenager, I would come downstairs in, in the morning at home and I would find my mum and my dad reading their Bibles. It was, the Bible was the story on which our family was based. It was the firm foundation of our family. And um, my, uh, my dad was so into the Bible that he drove me to school, and, and um, on, the, uh, on the journey to school, he would, uh, before we could talk about important things like football and Aston Villa, he, uh, he made me learn Bible verses. So we would recite Bible verses in the car on the way to school, but it was those verses that saved me when the storms came. Because the next morning, after crying into the pillow the night before, I wake up, and I remember a verse I'd, read, I'd learned as a 12-year-old in the car from Lamentations 3. That said, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. A few months after that, I got a phone call that would break my heart and was the worst phone call I've ever received in my life. My mum's friend who calls me up and she says, Phil, I'm really sorry, but this morning your dad has died. And dad was an amazing Christian man who taught me Bible verses in the car, an amazing role model, a, a hero, and... At that point, as a family, we had a decision to say, either God stuff you for letting this happen, or God, we really need you right now. And some of you will be going through, or have gone through, or will go through some terrible suffering in your life. And I don't know why that happens, but I do know that the Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted. And in all the years I've been a Christian, the closest I've ever known God is in those first few months after Dad died. That night, my mum is in her bed, and she's, she's, uh, she's in, her present is a, a unspeakable agony. Her future's uncertain. She's got three kids. I'm 21. My sister's 18 on a gap year, and my, my brother's 13, and she's wondering how she's going to raise these kids, how she's going to be financially secure. And she remembers a verse that she learned as a little girl from Psalm 68 that says, a father to the fatherless and defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. It's the verses inside us that will save us when the storms come. It's the firm foundation in which we build our life. And maybe for some of us this evening, God is calling us to a deeper relationship with his word to be a firmer foundation in your life. Second foundation is that of Jesus. Possibly the most simplistic but profound thing I'll say this evening is that Jesus is amazing. And I pray. I became a Christian when I was six. Someone told me how amazing Jesus was. I thought I was even more excitable than I am now. 
And so I thought this was amazing. I thought what he did for me was amazing. And that's when I became a Christian. And I hope that, I hope I lived to 96. And I hope I still think that Jesus is as amazing, if not more amazing, then. You see, in the beginning was the author. The answer to the question not yet posed. Solution to a mystery not yet disclosed. Liberator to a regime not yet imposed. And there in the background as the story unfolds, holding his run from times of old, waiting as priests, poets, and prophets foretold of the author of all love and life and all that is good. And then, bang, in a moment that is cosmically linkable, the author becomes unthinkably shrinkable. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Because the author comes down to meet us, the king of the world becomes a fetus. And from Judean hills, the story was broadcast and some logged on, hooked up, tuned in. And to those who did with a wireless connection, the author promised life and resurrection. Weaving tales, leaving trails, breaking jails, removing scales from people's eyes open to a kingdom where humanity hails the author. But then impaled. You see, love is just words until action prevails. And this point is proven by blood drawn by nails. And squaring up sin and death, the author wailed. But that's just the finale of season six. Because in season seven's a box full of tricks. The author smashes death in the face with a spade because hell cannot hold his loving tirade. For 2,000 years, the story continues. Get yourself plugged in like there's nothing to lose. So reach for your settings and turn your Li-Fi on. Because the author is still speaking. His heart is still beating. And the story is love. And with it, he frees us. Because the author has a name. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is amazing. If you take the Christ out of Christian, all you're left with is Ian, and he's not as good. We are people who follow Jesus. We're people of the Bible. We're people of Jesus. The third firm foundation on which to build your life is the cross. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the single most important moment in human history. And at the cross, Jesus does a couple of things. First of all, he demonstrates how much he loves us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Jesus shows us how much he loves us. Secondly, all the rubbish, all the pain, all the shame, all the sin, all the guilt that ever has been, ever was, and ever would be, your rubbish, my rubbish, Jesus takes upon him, and it dies with him. Jesus' purpose for coming is revealed in his name. And his name means God saves. If our greatest need 2,000 years ago was for entertainment, God would have sent a clown. If our greatest need 2,000 years ago was for wisdom, God would have sent a philosopher. If our greatest need 2,000 years ago was for health, God would have sent a doctor. But our greatest need then is the same as it is now. It's for forgiveness. So God sent a saviour cross demonstrates Jesus' love for us and he takes our shame and our sin and it dies with him. Got a mate called Dave. We've all got a mate called Dave, haven't we? And uh, my mate Dave, <laughs> my mate Dave's from the West Midlands 
And uh, if you think I'm Brummy, he, is, he takes Brumminess to another level. And uh, Dave, Dave's infamous in my life for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is that um, he, uh, his, his life now and again is a bit of a mess. So a few years ago, he comes on holiday with us as a family. We're kind of trying to, be, trying to help him out, love him, look after him. And he comes on holiday with us to Scotland, and we're playing around a round of golf. And as, through the first nine holes, we're terrible golfers. It takes all day. So for the first nine holes, he's pouring his heart out to me. And after the ninth hole, we sit down, have a peanut butter sandwich, and he says to me, I feel my life's a mess. And I'm not very pastoral. So I said, Dave, your life, your life is a mess. And I said, Dave, he says, what shall I do? I said, Dave, I am out of human wisdom. I have nothing to say to you. I said, Dave, all you can do is give your life to Jesus and let him sort it out. I've been praying for Dave for kind of 10 to 15 years. If you've not got people like Dave who you're praying for in your life, you need some. Because people like Dave need Jesus. This guy in particular... And he's, uh, he's put, he says, I say, what? You've got to give your life to Jesus. I'm praying in that moment. He turns to me and says, what must I do to be saved? I'm praying, going, come on, God, let me through the moment. He turns to me and he goes, what's the second best option? <laughs> isn't, that be- isn't that a beautiful summary of how so much of the world lives in the second best option? Anyway, Dave's still not Christian. Anyway, so uh, last summer, um, I'm preaching in Newcastle. So I text Dave in the week, uh, who lives in Newcastle, and I say, Dave, can I come and stay with you? On the Saturday night, I'm preaching at church Sunday night. Can I come and stay with you? Watch some World Cup, have a curry, have some beers. Be great. He goes, yeah, great. And he texts me back and he says, would, would you like to come to church with me on the Sunday? And I'm like, oh. I'm like, Dave, this isn't normally how it works. Normally it's a Christian who invites the non-Christian to church. He goes, yeah, but there's a girl I like. So I'm like, fantastic, quality day, flirt to convert. Get in there, quality. So, um, so, so I... Um, I say, great. So, so we turn up at this church. And this is proper like, it's not like this at all. It's proper like old school Methodist church where there's a balcony and there's pews and the pews are full of like a sea of gray hair. And in the balcony, there's me, Dave and the girl he likes. And we're there and there's some hymns and it's like, it's, and the hymns, I mean, it's really weird because I don't know them. And it's like, and I'm like, it is weird because I'm like a professional Christian. I'm like, well, I don't know the songs. Are, these, are we sure these are Christian songs? Um, anyway, so, and then Amazing Grace comes up. And I know that one. And so what happens is when Amazing Grace comes on, partly because I'm kind of pent up because of, like, I've not known the song so far, partly because Amazing Grace is amazing. It's an amazing song, Amazing Grace. And I kind of throw my hands in the air and just yeah, absolutely forget where I am and just start going, Amazing Grace, how sweet. And I absolutely go for it. And people in the pews are like, what on earth is that noise? You can just hear something. Um, Anyway, so about 10 days later, I talking to Dave on the phone, and we're both laughing about the incident. Um, and he says, uh, he says, Phil, went back to the church you went to. They're still talking about your singing. I'm like, get in there. And I say, Dave, I'm, I'm like, you know, I feel like it's a great evangelistic opportunity. So I'm like, Dave, can I explain to you why I sung like that? He goes, okay. So I said, Dave, the thing is, it's amazing grace. I said, Dave, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Can you see? He goes, I don't really get it. And for Dave, the challenge is sometimes, I don't know about you, but, but we can see Christianity as some kind of like thing that slightly makes our life a little bit better. Two weeks ago, I, 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 uh, I upgraded, well, I didn't upgrade, I, I phoned to renegotiate my TV and internet broadband subscription. They're always trying to sell you something, a little upgrade to make it a bit better. Jesus doesn't just make your life a little bit better completely transforms your life. It's amazing grace. 
I said, Dave, the thing is, I was trying to get through to him. I said, I rewrote Amazing Grace for Average Grace. So I said, Dave, the thing is, it's not Average Grace. How bland the sound that slightly improved my life. I went to church and liked the songs, and now I have to be nice. I said, Dave, it's not that. It's Amazing Grace. He's still not a Christian. The cross and resurrection of Jesus completely changed everything. And take it from average grace to amazing grace. And a firm foundation on which we can build our life. Fourthly, we believe that something happens when people become Christians. You don't somehow become a Christian by osmosis. You don't somehow kind of wander kind of accidentally into the kingdom of God. There's a moment. This afternoon at Burn Home preached the these baptism of these two amazing people. David and Caitlin, who stood before the, the whole church and their peers and their family and said, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I'm going to turn from the rubbish. I'm going to turn to follow Jesus. It was amazing because we believe something happens. This verse in, in Corinthians that says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. My greatest joy in life, actually, if you ask me what I value the most, back to that question, I finally thought of the answer. It's people coming to know Jesus. Been an evangelist ever since I can remember. When I was six, I got all, my, all the lads in my class to come to Boys Brigade. Apart from one, called Richard Clarkson. If you bump into a 35-year-old called Richard Clarkson, blonde hair, good lad, but didn't come to Boys Brigade, please tell him about Jesus, because he didn't come. And I, I, the day he left the school, I wept because I, I thought I'd missed my chance. I thought I was normal. A couple of years ago, I was uh, speaking at this Easter conference. Been there for a couple of weeks. Done every morning, was completely exhausted, was, uh, was almost at the end. And um, I, uh, I get to the end of my lap, all my penultimate talk. I pick up the, my Bible on my iPad and go to kind of walk off, just exhausted. And out the corner of my eye, I see a bolshy 14-year-old girl. Do you know the, the type I'm talking about? Year nine. <laughs> Starts marching towards me. I'm like, Lord, strike her down. <laughs> Didn't work. Anyway, she comes up to me and she goes, I want you to know that God might spoken to me through you this morning. <laughs> I, said, I said, thank you so much. I said, can you write that down and do like a newsletter, you know, next week. She says, I want you to know that I'm a Buddhist. I used to be a Christian. My friend Lydia has been trying to invite me to these meetings all week. At this point, a really nice little girl called Lydia pops out, who's this proper, like, sweet and innocent Christian girl who have clearly been badgering Lydia. She's also called Lydia, by the way, so it's really confusing. So there's non-Christian Lydia and sweet and innocent little Lydia. And little Lydia, Christian Lydia, has been inviting non-Christian Lydia to the meetings. I'm like, well done, Christian Lydia. Christian, angry, non-Christian Lydia says, I want you to know that I might come back this evening. I'm like, okay. And at that point, she goes off. And I'm like, need a latte and a lie down. But all afternoon, I am praying that God would do something to bring them back to the meeting that evening. And as I'm waiting at the door, these two girls come in to the front of the room. She sits down. It's a standard youth meeting. You probably remember them. There was a kind of, there's some singing and a talk and then a time of ministry. And if you have any proof that God exists, the time of ministry lasted about 10 minutes. There were 515 to 18-year-olds, completely quiet. It was amazing. And then out of nowhere, out of this complete silence comes this singing. You lead me out across the waters, great unknown. And suddenly it catches like wildfire across the venue. And soon there's this beautiful heaven meets earth moment where the keyboard player finds the key and everyone's singing. There's a bit of ministry time at the end, praying for a few people. And at the corner of my eye at the end, I see the walk <laughs> coming towards me. And she comes up to me. She says, Phil, I want you to know 
that God has done the miracle I needed. I'm like, great, why are you still so angry? <laughs> she says, she says, she says, I forgot what she says. She says, but I need to go. My mum's in the car. I'm leaving the event tonight. I said, whoa, 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 Olivia, you need to go. Before you need to go, before you go, I think you need to do something. She says, what's that? I said, Lydia, I think you need to give your life to Jesus. She's like, okay then. It's not normally that easy, but great. So she says, okay, she says, okay. She says, what do I do? She said, well, you say you're sorry for the things you've done wrong. You say you want to trust Jesus and you want to follow him and you want to go for it with him. So she says, okay. She says, oh, I do that. I said, yeah. She closes her eyes. She grits her teeth. I'm like, oh my Lord, what is going to come out of her mouth? She goes, dear God, I want you to know. And she prays the most beautiful prayer, surrenders her life to Jesus. And a year later, a friend of mine goes back to that same event. And angry Lydia's still angry. But she's angry now at the things in the world that aren't right. She's still following Jesus. She's absolutely going for it and her life's transformed. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. We're people who believe that when you become a Christian, it makes a difference. It's a firm foundation in which we can build our life. And Paul talks about the transformation in his own life and says, but by the grace of God... I am what I am. He's someone who says the first importance is according to the scriptures. And then according to the scriptures, it's Christ. And then Christ died. And on the third day rose again. And I am what I am. Finally, we are people who are activists. That our faith is not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It makes a difference about how we live and makes a difference in the world around us. Do you know what? There's so many things the church gets wrong. So many times we're embarrassed by Christians. But do you know what? We also should be proud of us as a church. The local church is the hope of the world. And all across this nation and the nations, God uses Christians to do absolutely amazing things. Food banks, Christians against poverty, street pastors, more toddler groups than anybody else. Our church employs three times as many youth workers as the state. We do amazing stuff and contribute to society like no other body. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. As Christians, one of the firm foundations we can build our lives on is that faith makes a difference. Paul is someone who goes around planting churches, spreading the faith like wildfire. He recognizes that God is at work in the world and calls, calls us to play a role with him in the renovation of the whole of the world. It's also a beautiful picture of how God uses us in the world. Do you know, I think if he wanted to, God could change the world by himself. Could do it all on his own. But yet, yeah, in his majesty and his beauty and sometimes in his sense of humor, he chooses to use us. Chris Martin could do, probably do it better on his own. But he sees someone with their sign in the crowd. He calls them out and they play together. My challenge to us this evening is, if we are people who build our lives on these firm foundations, how does that help us make a difference in the world around us? How can we be people who maybe lift our sign a little higher, but actually see this is the way that mission works? This is the way it works. We do it with God. It's not on our own. It's together. There's a few beautiful moments in the, uh, in, in the video. I love the moment where he gets his phone out, and he's like, you know, trying to film it, and he's like, Chris, like, it's going to be filmed, man. You're okay. You're okay. Do you know, when we try to step out for God, people notice. People notice. Second thing I love, I love the... Um, 
Uh, I love the moment he gets things wrong to start with, and he's kind of a bit fast, and he kind of fudges the first few notes, and, and Chris kind of gets alongside and goes, slow, slow, slow. We become more like Jesus in lots of ways. But one of the ways in which we become more like Jesus most is when we do the things that Jesus does in the world. And as we step out and get things wrong and muddle and do it too fast or do it too slow or get notes wrong, God comes alongside us and says, slow, slow, go at my pace. Finally, I love the moment when he sings that line in the song, this particular diamond's extra special. He puts his hand on his shoulder. He just says, I'm with you. God will not love you anymore if you transform the whole of the world. And he won't love you any less if you don't do anything and if you have the most private faith and don't tell anyone ever you're a Christian and don't help any old ladies across the road and kick a puppy now and again. (laughs) But my experience is that as I've stepped out for God, there's been moments where I felt his smile and his hand on my shoulder in a really special way. Jesus' commands to go and make disciples of all nations is coupled with a promise because I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this evening, may you be people who build your lives on firm foundations, who stand strong in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. And may you too be people who stand tall, put your sign in the air and say, God, here I am, send me. Stand if you're able. That's cool. And um, just want to invite you for a moment to bow your heads and uh, just allow God to speak to you through any of these moments that I've shared this evening. Maybe it's all of them, maybe it's none of them. I hope it's at least one of them. But my hope for each of us is that we leave here with a stronger sense that we stand firm on solid foundations as Christians and can stand tall to make a difference in the world around us.